Just quoting from the sermon, I think uh, last week's sermon, she, she writes, Christ will act wisely in our mission and, is, and in his wisdom he will never be thwarted. In that we can be encouraged. Those who have never been told will see. Those who have never heard will hear. He will accomplish his mission. And she writes, love this. Tim, I'm encouraged by the message a couple of Sundays ago, behold your servant or something like that. Listen to it this morning. And then she sent some pictures. They were actually driving home. They had just purchased uh, their new vehicle. And so the family's there, they're together, actually sent a video. Wish I could put it up on the screen, can't do that. But then she writes this. Another huge answer to prayer is mama. That is their language um, helper and dear friend. We have been going through chronological teaching since October. Um, the week before we came up to Dakar, we went through the death, burial, and resurrection together. She accepted Jesus as her own personal savior. First time she had heard these things and soaked them up and accepting, accepting them fully. This is a message she sent to, to friends. She knows she's a sinner and knew that the separation from God is the punishment for our sins. She learned today that Jesus chose to be our sacrifice and took our place. He put our sins on himself and died. He was separated from God for us, like God actually turned his back on his son. The curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two. But what truly revealed that Jesus was the son of God is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Mama said she knew she was a sinner, but she learned today that Jesus died for her sins, that he took her place. She prayed with me and asked God to forgive her and told me she is trusting in Jesus to save her. She said she will pray that one day her whole family will know the truth too. Lily writes, my heart sings praises to God today. We're going to sing praise to God today as well. Uh, uh, I will continue going through lessons with Mama. She is completely surrounded by Muslims in her home. And so this will be a challenge for her. But I look forward to continuing study God's, studying God's word together. Well, all of heaven rejoices. All of heaven sings. And uh, we, we will sing more this morning as well. Title this morning is Sing to the Lord. You know, you sing everywhere. You sing in the car, right? Have you pulled up next to that person at the red light? Like just going for it in the car? Or were you that person just going for it? You know, and all of a sudden your friend looks over at you. <laughs> you know, like you love that, right? Like we sing everywhere. We sing in the shower. We sing in the car. We, we sing at the birthday party. We sing at the funeral. We sing at the wedding. We sing. The, my favorite place to sing is right here. I love the singing of the church of God gathered. I love standing at the front of this auditorium and hearing the voices behind me singing to the Lord. You know, it's different. Singing is different than speaking. I know that's not profound, but we don't often think about it. Isaiah is showing us in Isaiah 54, here's the big idea, the spectacular glory of how our singing came to be. The surprise of who does the singing, the eternal worth of him who we Sing to, and then when 
does this singing take place, all right? Spectacular glory of how our singing came to be, the surprise of who does the singing, the eternal worth of him who we sing to, and when will this singing all take place? But singing is different than speaking. Aren't you grateful for the outlet that God gives us the means, the outlet to express our gratitude to the Lord. There's, there's a difference, right? There's a difference from me saying, bless the Lord, oh my soul. I can even say it with emphasis. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. That's different than bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul. Worship his holy name. It's completely different than bless the Lord, oh my soul. Worship his holy name. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We, we just sang those words. Ronald Allen writes these words. When a non-singer becomes a Christian, he or she becomes a singer. Not all are blessed with a finely tuned ear and a well-modulated voice. So the sound may not be superb. It may even be out of tune and off key. Remember, worship is a state of heart. Musical sound is a state of art. Let's not confuse them. Let's pray and we'll dive into our text. God, make us singers. Lord, we, we sing with all of heaven for mama's salvation. Oh, Lord, thank you. Praise be to our God. You continue to act wisely in mission. Lord, you continue to move on people's hearts. Lord, you continue to move on our hearts, the redeemed. Lord, we are, we are saved and we know you, and yet the song only grows in passion and expression and, and even volume as we know you more and more and we understand more and more the redemption that we have received. So be glorified today. Lord, um, teach us to sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So who does the singing? It should surprise us. The barren one does the singing. That's the surprise of the text. But how did that, how did the, that spectacular glory of singing even come to be? Or, or we could ask it this way. In what sort of way can the prophet say barrenness and joy singing? The barren one should link up with a joyful heart, a singing heart. How, how does Isaiah say that in the same breath? How does he make that connection? Is it a mistake? Is it a cruel joke? Barrenness is anything but joyful singing, right? Sing for joy, oh barren one. Is it some sort of paint a smile on your face? Is it some sort of pretending? Fake it till you make it? Is, is, is Isaiah just not rooted in reality? He's a guy. He doesn't know the pain of barrenness. I ask you again, in what sort of sick way can Isaiah say to the barren, sing for joy? 
In Isaiah's day, to be barren was to be viewed with shame. You were a lesser person as a woman, barren. It was not an occasion for joyful singing. It was a time for profound tears and sadness. So what is Isaiah 54 after in us? You see, you and I, were spiritually barren people. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were completely unable to produce spiritual life in ourselves. We are, chapter 55, we'll see next week, we are thirsty and broke If you know you've been in Trinity for any length of time, you know it's one of my favorites to go to. Thirsty and broke, we have no money, and we're told, come and buy. How do we do that? Well, come next week. We'll tell you how we do that next week. Thirsty and broke, you're empty, chapter 55. Chapter 54, barren, sing for joy. What these chapters are telling us is you and I have no righteousness whatsoever in ourselves to produce any spiritual life at all. None. We cannot produce our righteousness. Our will, we saw last week, is bent towards straying. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Our will doesn't naturally desire God or the things of God. Desire for God is supernatural, not natural. Our contribution to our salvation is just this bent towards rebellion. And yet God is telling us through his prophet Isaiah to sing for joy, O barren one. Because the barren one is barren no more. That's what verses two and three are gonna tell us. Barren no more, actually expand the tent pegs is the feel. The family of God is growing in Isaiah chapter 54. They could not, we could not, we cannot accomplish our salvation. And that's the point of the joyful singing. That's the point because we are the spiritually barren ones unable to produce spiritual life and yet Chapter 53, you've been given spiritual life through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've been given life, O barren one. Sing for joy. That's the spectacular glory that brought us to chapter 54. What's the context of chapter 54? (laughs) Not a trick question. Chapter 53 (laughs) is the context of chapter 54. There were no chapter breaks, right? In the, in the original text, there's no 54, you know? Like we put down our Bibles at the end of 53. We pick it up the next day, 54. We forgot what was 53. Listen to how 53 ends. No chapter break. Let's just read right through it. And yet he bore the sin of many. That's the end of 53. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgression. Sing. O barren one, 
who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. It's saying, praise be to God. Christ labored for you. We cannot produce our righteousness. Christ produced righteousness and life for us. Sing with joy because the barren is completely unable to produce any slightest resemblance of righteousness. Sing because Christ Let's go back to chapter 53, verse 4. Sing because surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Sing, sing, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Sing at the end of verse, well, let's read verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sing verse number 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Sing verse 11 at the end. Make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Sing Verse 12, at the end, yet he bore the sins of many. Sing, church, sing. Because you and I were the barren ones, completely unable to produce spiritual life, completely unable to produce righteousness. And yet you, oh, righteousness, chapter 53, verse 11, righteousness has been accounted to you. Sing. Did you know that the New Testament quotes this verse, verse number one? Here's how Paul quotes this verse to the Galatians. He says this, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, and he quotes, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What's going on here? Both for Paul and for Isaiah, they're not saying two different things. They're saying the same thing. You see, there are two ways for us to address our barrenness. Two ways. And Abraham and Sarah as a exhibit A is what Paul's doing. Let's look at Abraham and Sarah because they performed both ways, seeking to address their barrenness. Abraham and Sarah decided the first way is let's take matters in our own hands. You see, because we can't trust God because his promises are too extravagant because because everybody knows Sarah is barren 
And so his promise that there would be a promised child, well, I mean, God's great, but that's just too much. And so we, we need to take matters in our own hands and through our own efforts, we will produce a child. So here's my maidservant, Hagar. You have a child with her and we're gonna, we're gonna make this happen. That's one way to accomplish, right? To rid oneself of barrenness. How do we do that today? Well, we take matters in our own hands. We say, oh, salvation righteousness is just too much. It's too much. God, God's great. He's wonderful. But as far as this goes, he needs my help. Just like Abraham and Sarah, he needs my help. I need to press, push my efforts towards my salvation. It's my righteousness is needed in the equation of salvation for God, for me to earn God's favor. Well, I just need to work really hard at it. I need to take matters in my own hands and work out my salvation in these sort of ways. That's one way to address spiritual barrenness. It lacks the faith, just as Abraham and Sarah lacked the faith. The second way Abraham and Sarah addressed their barrenness is they trusted in the Lord. That he will be faithful to his promises. Second way for us is to trust in the Lord for our salvation. You see, Isaac, not Ishmael, was the promised child of God. And God wanted them to trust him in their complete inability, in their barrenness. Trust me, I will provide your salvation so that the child and future generations would worship God and trust in him and him alone because they would have known, oh, Father Abraham, yeah, that, he couldn't pull that off. So how does Isaiah get away with saying to the barren one, sing with joy? He gets away with that because the barren one cannot produce a life. And yet God caused life to come from Abraham and Sarah. How does he call us? We are the barren ones to sing with joy. Oh, because we cannot produce a spiritual life. And yet God caused life to be brought into our lives. So sing, church, sing. Verse one again. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud. You have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Here's the expansion. Here's even just mission. And let the curtains of your inhabitants habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. That's the Old Testament's way of saying the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Christ's atonement brought to the barren one calls the barren one out to singing, joyful singing. Sing because Christ has produced something in you that you could not produce in yourself. Sing. It's beyond you to produce one single speck of righteousness. 
and yet you are fully made righteous in Christ this morning. Oh, sing. Sing because you're in Christ. Sing because you have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Sing because you have been forgiven. Sing. You may not be a good singer. It matters not. Sing because you have been redeemed just the same as the next person who's a great singer. Sing and rejoice in your salvation. Who do we sing to? Point number two, who do we sing to? The text tells us we sing to the faithful creator redeemer. The imagery of these verses, hear this, is a wife reconciling to her husband. We'll read these verses in just a moment. The people of God have been unfaithful to God. Now that, we've been saying that through the entire series, right? For almost a year now, we've been saying they've been unfaithful to God. Listen, I know this is an adult crowd this morning, but I don't know who's watching on the screen. So I'm using my words carefully, sensitive to the children who might be watching on the live stream. But adults, I want you to understand what's going on in the text. What, what, what's being spoken of here is the wife has been unfaithful to the marriage relationship. And you fill in those blanks. You get it. You understand. They've been unfaithful in their relationship with God. They have pursued a false husbands, false gods of the surrounding nations. This is the contemporary would be Hosea. If you know anything about Hosea, if you don't go and just, just read the study Bible notes and you'll get it. Let's read. As God deals with their unfaithfulness and their shame and their guilt and he redeems his people. Verse four, fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger from a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. And he says it again, says the Lord, your Redeemer, your Redeemer. I've, I've brought, he's saying here in verse seven, I've brought judgment upon you, right? You gotta think, you gotta think the whole story of Isaiah, all that we've been preaching, right? And even in his judgment, remember early, early on in our series, we're saying even the judgment of God is the mercy of God because if he would have left them to themselves, right? It is the mercy of God that he brings discipline to his people, that he calls them to repentance, and that there are people there who are repenting of their sins and trusting in the future Savior to come. I have redeemed you, he says twice there in those verses. O barren one, sing. How does the New Testament say these verses? He's not quoting at this point. Paul's not quoting. But here's how the New Testament might communicate that. 
For while we were still weak, or Isaiah says, for while we were barren, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received reconciliation. Church, sing. Redemption is being spoken of here, all the way back here in the book of Isaiah. Redemption, the, 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 the picture, the imagery, uh, or the reality of, of what's being done here when we speak of Christ is my redeemer. It's this, it's, it's, it's our sins demand payment. The wages of sin is death. The, what we have earned, here's our wages, here's what we earn for sin, it is death. But redemption is Christ takes our place. He receives the death that our sins deserves. Christ has redeemed you. It's the word that we used for the last three weeks in a row. I'm gonna say it again, substitutionary atonement. Christ substitutes himself on the cross. He receives the justified, wrathful, punishment that our sins, your sins, my sins deserve. He takes them on his shoulders. He bears our griefs and he gives us his righteousness. Sing. Christ delivered us from the power of sin and death. You and I are barren. We can't produce that spiritual life. Christ does so by paying the price that our sins deserve. So Trinity, I say again and again, sing. Is it possible? Is it even humanly possible to sing with too much joy to that news? Could any of us say, you know, that one time, that was just a little over the top in the joy category. I mean, Christ's redemption is pretty amazing, but I think I got carried away. Is it even possible to get too carried away? Is it possible to have too much passion in our singing? I wanna say to the young people in the room, watching on the live stream, kick your coolness to the curb and sing. And I wanna say to the adults, Throw your decorum to the side and sing. With great joy, sing. He is your redeemer. So why do we sing? I mean, obviously we've been saying why we sing, but Isaiah wants to make sure we understand. He talks about the covenant of peace. Next, verse nine. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should, be no more, should, should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's good news. That's very good news. 
It can feel like as you're reading, if you read this, sat down and read this all in one sitting, it can feel like God's kind of up and he's kind of down. There's judgment and then there's mercy and then there's affliction and then there's covenant of peace. The covenant of peace is communicated for our benefit that God is anything but up and down. God's covenant towards you, the believer in Jesus Christ, is steadfast, immovable. So sing. Sing because you and I are promise breakers. Sing because God is a promise keeper. You and I, remember the imagery and what all the unfaithfulness here represents. We are the unfaithful wife. We are the chapter 53, verse 6, the sheep that goes astray, each of us to our own wicked way. But God is immovable in his love towards you. The very fact that you're in this building, perhaps that you're watching the live stream, that you have any interest in God at all, is because of the covenant of peace that he's brought to you. And God will be faithful to his promises. It's a covenant of peace, meaning it is a promise, it is a covenant, it is a contract of peace. You see, if the book of Isaiah convinces you of anything, it ought to be that God will remain faithful. In spite of his people, he will have a people. Are you born again? Are you a Christian? Are you saved? Blood bought. I've repented of my sins and I'm trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Well, welcome to the covenant of peace. So sing. When do we sing? We sing now and we sing forever. See, it's because of the covenant of peace that he then says to us, verses 11 through 17. We'll read those in a moment. He begins in verse 11, O afflicted one. Here we are again, up, down. You see, the covenant is eternal, and your peace then is eternal. And so to the afflicted ones, in the midst of your affliction, what is he communicating? Your affliction is not what's eternal. What's eternal in the text is his covenant of peace. So, oh, afflicted ones, sing. Verse 11, oh, afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in, in uh, intimate. It, someone tell me. I, I rehearsed this 18 times this morning. Intimony. Sounds weird to me now. <laughs> and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Why not? Because of the covenant of peace. It's interesting, he speaks of a gate, carbuncles, precious stones. 
This is Isaiah prophesying of a future city of lavish jewels. The city is built by God. Amazingly, it's a city built for the redeemed people of God. It should recall us to memory something about God's word. Because at the end of this book, not the book of Isaiah, but the book, at the end of the book is Revelation 21. And in Revelation 21, John picks up this theme of the eternal city of God. It's heaven. Remember, as we've walked through the book of Isaiah, we've said many times, there's, there's two cities throughout the book. There's the city of man and there's the city of God. Listen to how John puts the city of God. He goes into a little bit more detail about the precious stones. The wall was built of jasper. This is Revelation 21, 18. While the city was pure gold, like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, not sure, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Worship team, you can join me. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, and nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here we go from, where did we start this morning? Barren one to this, right? We, we go from empty to wealthy. We go to you're barren, you cannot produce spiritual life to the absolute fullness, right? You see, see this is not what Revelation is saying. All right, don't misunderstand. Re Revelation is not coming, coming to us and saying, look at the wealth. Look at your, your prosperity. Look at, look at all the monetary oh, things that are around you. Look at the, the gold and all the different jewels that I had a hard time reading. It's not saying that you're going to be monetarily rich in heaven. That's not the point of Isaiah or of Revelation. Rather, it's showing you the spectacular glory of once barren, now in complete fullness. It's not as if you need gold in heaven. It's not as if gold will even be impressive in heaven when we're next to Jesus Christ. See, it's once we were once broke spiritually broke, we will one day lack for nothing. We were once afflicted, verse 11, but now in verse 17, it says, no weapon that is fashioned against us shall succeed. We were once barren, verse number one, but he has given us the family of God, verse number two. We were all like sheep gone astray, chapter 53, verse six, but now 
verse 14, you and I are in righteousness of Christ. Because verse 16, he lacks no resources whatsoever. He is the antithesis of barren. And so those who will attack you because of the covenant of peace, he's able to say, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Meaning nothing that opposes you will destroy that covenant of peace that has been promised to you. It's very much like how Paul would have said or did say to the Romans, chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What weapon should be formed against you? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the covenant of peace. It's the covenant of peace. Let's all stand. Let's sing, church. Let's sing.